The second case for argument is 21-3141 from the District of Minnesota, National Union Fire Insurance Company of Pittsburgh versus Cargill. McDonald, when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, counsel. Uh, I'm Tim McDonald. I represent National Union in this appeal. What Cargill purchased was a commercial crime policy that covers employee theft. And for our purposes, it only covers employee theft, what's relevant before this court. It does not include losses that result from employee dishonesty. That's a different type of policy. Cargill could have bought that kind of policy. There's a legion of cases, including this court's decision in Avon State Bank, the actual earlier case from 2004 involving Cargill and National Union that discusses extensively dishonesty policy cases. But what Cargill purchased was a theft policy. And the problem for Cargill and the problem with the district court's opinion below was there was not a theft here. The independent investigators will refer to that as the Frisk Report that the parties jointly tasked concluded that the corn and sorghum was not stolen. That's page 141 of the record. And in fact, the Frisk investigator concluded that uh, the corn and sorghum was sold at market prices in Albany. Now, there was undoubtedly employee dishonesty because Cargill's employee, Ms. Bacchus, was found to have misrepresented the prices to Cargill corporate. So indisputably dishonest acts by the employee, but not theft. The corn and sorghum was not stolen. And for that reason, we ask this court to reverse the district court decision awarding $22 million in coverage and 12, almost $12 million in interest. And Council, is, is the word stolen is the same as theft? In other words, theft, you've got a, you've got a definition of theft, right? In That's your right. policy. And at least as the district court looked at it, I'm, as I read that opinion, those aren't necessarily the same things. And as the parties agree, the first report didn't decide coverage. That, that's, so it's, that's was right. it to the, dep to the deprivation of the insured, right? That's right, Your Honor. So, so, the, the, the first, so help me understand, because the first report also found that cargo would have never sent, if not most, if not all, of that grain to Albany but for that misrepresentation. Is that a deprivation? So I, I don't think it is. So you're right. The definition in the policy is an unlawful taking of the property to the deprivation of the insured Cargill. Here, the property is the corn and sorghum. So the, the right question for this court to ask is, did Cargill's employee unlawfully take the corn and sorghum to Cargill's deprivation. T 
taking uh, is, is unambiguous. N numerous courts have said that. The Black's Law Dictionary defines taking as the act of seizing an article with implicit transfer of possession and control. So the, or, or is it your position it has to be physical, or have you conceded that it doesn't have to be a physical taking? It doesn't have to be physical, Your Honor. An implicit transfer of possession and control is sufficient. But that doesn't help Cargill because Cargill had uh, possession and control of that corn until the moment it was sold. And certainly you can't conclude on the pleadings based on the Frisk report otherwise. For example, if the train had caught fire at any point while it's on its way to uh, Albany, that was Cargill's corn and sorghum. If the warehouse had caught fire while, uh, while the corn and sorghum were sitting in Albany, it was Cargill's corn and sorghum. So it's not the, the possession and control was never taken away from Cargill until it was sold at market prices. Because otherwise, so, what, so what, what do you do with the Frisk Report's conclusion that Cargill would not have sent, again, most if not all of this grain to Albany? It just wouldn't have done it. So it would have never gone there for any kind of sale at market price or otherwise. So I don't think for this. I, I don't think I don't think the Cargill the the Frisk report reaches quite that far, Your Honor. It it says it wouldn't have been economically prudent. One of the issues that was removed from the Frisk report's uh, purview was whether or not Cargill uh, incurs losses at other locations. In other words, whether they make decisions to continue to send grain to places uh, where they might take a loss. For example, here, the Frisk report shows that Cargill was selling to its own animal feed division a substantial amount of the corn and sorghum that it was delivering. So the, the Frisk report doesn't say they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have sold any. It's true. They talk about minimal corn. But that still doesn't deprive uh, the, the, the transfer. Uh, Ms. Bacchus's false price uh, reporting to Cargill doesn't deprive Cargill of possession uh, or control of that corn. It's true it's dishonest, um, no, no question about it. But so, so she didn't control these, the disposition of that grain. I mean, isn't that the argument on the other side, that she essentially controlled that, or, or, or am I misstating it? I, I think they're she saying she... To the ultimate deprivation of Cargill. So their argument, as I understand it, is she was uh, behind the scenes pulling the strings, persuading Cargill to do something that, uh, as Judge Kelly points out, they claim they wouldn't have done any at all. And I don't think the Frisk report can be fairly read to say they wouldn't have sent any. But th again, we're on the pleadings here uh, without any discovery given to National Union below. But the, the Frisk report never concludes that Cargill was deprived of that possession and control. It, it, it says they, as, as Judge Kelly points out, maybe they wouldn't have sent it all. It would have been uneconomic for them to do so. But that doesn't mean they don't have control uh, or possession of that grain. They still have control and possession of the grain until the moment it is sold at market prices. And there's nothing in the Frisk report that shows 
for example, that she took it to a different warehouse, that she uh, forged documents so that it was outside their possession and control uh, at the time it was sold. And so the, the first error of the district court is concluding on the pleadings that they lost that control as a matter of law, when in fact they had possession and control until the moment it was sold, albeit fraudulently. But again, this is not a dishonesty policy that, that compensates Cargill for anything that their employees do that is dishonest. The second error of the district court was the, the losses have to result directly from theft. So let's set the theft aside and assume we were wrong on theft, um, which I don't think we are, but let's assume we are. You can't conclude on the pleadings that, uh, that the $29 million in freight costs resulted directly from theft. What the district court did, and this is on page 8 of her opinion, is say, I'm going to uh, take the facts, uh, construe them uh, in, in Cargill's favor because you're an insurance company. And that, again, is improper. Uh, resolve all doubts in favor of Cargill as to whether it's direct. I think was the language that the court had. That's improper uh, at the pleading stage. We're entitled to take discovery uh, on, on issues relating to intervening decisions that people at Cargill may have made such that this would not be a direct loss. Secondarily, well, why wouldn't why wouldn't that be a part of the Frisk report? In other words, that was the party said this is quantum of loss. We we agree that this report is going to decide that, and we're not going to dispute it. Aren't you adding some additional factors? Like, well, no, maybe that's not everything for loss. Let's look at some other possible um, reasons why it isn't direct. I don't think so, Your Honor. Nothing in the Frisk report at any point says that the quantum of loss resulted directly from theft, from the, from the mispricing, uh, the misrepresentations on price. And, and they certainly didn't reach the question of whether it is an indirect or consequential loss, because as, as, as you stated at the outset, issues of coverage were outside the purview. So uh, the, the Frisk report can't be read to reach the conclusion of direct loss or the question of indirect or consequential loss. We're entitled to take discovery on that issue uh, and present that defense uh, at summary judgment or the appropriate time. The, the third issue that I think the district court got wrong, I, I talked a little bit about the fact that it was resolved at the pleading stage. Um, we have the direct indirect loss issue. That's one area we're entitled to take discovery on. A, a second is whether there was prior dishonesty. If at any point uh, prior to the, the discovery of the, the scheme in this case, if anyone at Cargill was aware of any prior dishonest acts by the employee, Ms. Bacchus, then there's no coverage, even if there was a theft, even if it was a direct loss, and even if the indirect or consequential loss exclusion doesn't but, apply. Maybe I think my questions are sounding a bit like a broken record, but is that the Frisk report, there is information about that as well, that she had an exemplary record and that Cargill didn't find out about it until, you know, X date. Are, are you are, are you bound by those facts? 
So I think there's two separate issues there, Your Honor. There's a prior dishonesty, which you're right, the Frisk report said we looked at her employee file, her personnel record. They didn't speak with her. They didn't speak with anyone at Cargill. And they make no finding whatsoever about whether there was any prior dishonesty of Ms. Bacchus. They did say her file didn't contain it, but that's not the same inquiry. With respect to- Did you ask them to? Did you propose that as something for the Frisk investigator to look into? So we asked that Ms. Bacchus be interviewed, and Cargill took that off the table because Cargill rejected the conditions that Ms. Bacchus' counsel imposed. So Ms. Bacchus was never interviewed, and that was Cargill's decision, not National Union's decision, Your Honor. With respect to the discovery of the loss, the policy provides that the loss has to be discovered during the policy period. Discovery is defined as when Cargill learns of facts which would cause a reasonable person to know that a loss of the type covered by this bond has been or will be incurred. Those facts, there's nothing in the Frisk report about that issue, Your Honor. So I think we're entitled to take discovery on it to see what else is out there. The pleadings certainly don't support a contrary conclusion as a matter of law, and I'd like to reserve the balance of my time if I may. You may. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Judge Wright correctly held on the pleadings that Cargill had coverage for Diane Bacchus' employee theft. There was coverage because Ms. Bacchus had authority to sell Cargill's grain, and she used that authority to sell its grain over a course of 10 years at losses of more than $32 million. That was an unlawful taking of Cargill's property to its deprivation. It was appropriate to resolve this on the pleadings because the Frisk report by the party's joint agreement made definitive findings on the facts. And finally, it was appropriate to award prejudgment interest to Cargill because National Union wrongly denied its claim for five years before losing in court. I want to start with the issue of coverage. Coverage, as counsel agreed, exists for employee theft. Theft is an unlawful taking property to the deprivation of Cargill. In its briefing, National Union repeatedly conceded that there does not have to be a loss of possession and control. It's possession or control, exercise of possession or control. Counsel, to your honors, repeatedly said both. They've conceded the opposite. But to your honors' point, Ms. Bacchus had authority to sell Cargill's grain. The Frisk report found this. It's at page 9 of our addendum. Her authority included negotiating sales contracts. Once she negotiated them, Cargill was bound to deliver the grain. Possession was transferred from Cargill to whoever Ms. Bacchus sold it to, and she controlled that. And there's nobody else in the middle. When did Cargill lose control of their grain? Cargill lost control of its grain as soon as she entered the binding sales contract. At that point, the loss was unavoidable. It had to comply with the contract. It had to acquire the grain to meet the contract. That caused the loss. 
the so does the binding and forgive me for if this is in the record and I didn't catch it. Is the binding contract come before the grain is shipped, or is there a preliminary um, sort of agreement to buy, get shipped, and then the binding contract gets signed? Your Honor, the record doesn't address that directly, whether you know some of it was fulfilled with grain on hand or as orders piled up, more grain was shipped. The Frisk report does find that there is not sufficient grain at Albany to meet her sales commitments, the binding contracts, and as a result, that's why Cargill had to fulfill it with grain from the Midwest. And to Your Honor's questions on causation here, the Frisk report found the Cargill incurred losses of $32,115,192 as a result of Ms. Bacchus misrepresenting the price in corn, of corn sorghum. So, well, the, the, the reason that I was asking about the timing is to address your opposing counsel's hypothetical. What if the train went off the track between Minnesota, the Midwest, and Albany? Yeah. Um, that's still Cargill's. Cargill <laughs> would submit an insurance claim and, and seek, seek uh, recovery. Yeah, yeah the, the possession ownership was transferred when it was turned over to the third parties, of course. But, but remember, the definition here applies to unlawful takings of control. And so Ms. Ms. Bacchus had control to sell the grain. She exercised that. And of course, there, wasn't, there wouldn't be anything unlawful about a, a train conductor driving the grain, you know, which is their hypotheticals. Theft is an unlawful taking. There's no dispute this was unlawful. It was fraudulent, and Ms. Bacchus is in prison because of it. It was a taking under the plain language of this. And, and to be clear, when counsel referred to the district court interpreting directly here, he claimed that that was a factual finding, but the word directly is in quotes in the district court's opinion. And she cites the Minnesota Supreme Court opinion at the end of that sentence saying you interpret ambiguity in favor of the insured. It, it was clear that what she was doing is interpreting ambiguity, not taking the facts against it. The, the facts were binding here. And, and I want to address to, to your Honor's point here that the questions in, that Cargill has made that judgment on the pleadings was inappropriate. It was appropriate because there were no material disputes of fact because the Frisk report was binding. The agreement here gave Cargill the choice, either do your claim the ordinary way, prove it up, or have a joint investigator make definitive findings of the facts. We say the facts in context here are all the facts necessary to settle the claim, because this is a loss settlement provision. They say there's some ambiguity about that, but they could only win on this policy question if the only reasonable interpretation was theirs. If ours is a plausible one, and it clearly is plausible, then we have to win on that. But your honors don't even need to go that far here, because even if some case, if an insurer were kicking and screaming, wanting to bring things into the Frick's process and denied and stole wall, that didn't happen here. When counsel says that things didn't happen because Cargill refused, that is just an inaccurate statement of the record. There's no support of that on that. And, and I just, I, I want to go directly at this, because what they point to before the investigator was hired, there is a discussion between Cargill and National Union of the Scope. This appears at one app 133, there is a discussion. And then the investigator proposed the scope. That happened two days later. Their proposed scope is at 129 to 32 of the appendix. And then National Union retained the investigator based on that scope. At no point did National Union ever complain about the scope, even though it was given the opportunity to do that. 
If they wanted to do more work on any of these things, if they wanted more investigated, they needed to request it. They didn't preserve it. And also this morning or this afternoon, I, I heard for the first time that now what they really need to do is to have more investigation into prior dishonesty. That wasn't requested at the investigator. That wasn't requested in the district court. That wasn't argued anywhere. That is completely waived. And your what about what about the, what about their claim that they they put in their complaint that they 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 think there may be some other coverage defenses? How does that fit into the frisk into sort of the process of the frisk yeah. report and the expectation of the parties and sort of dealing with other reasons why coverage might not apply here? Yeah, you've got to be forthright about what you want the facts investigated. If you think you have a coverage defense, you have to ask the investigator to do it. If you don't, you waive it. No one would buy this frisk report policy if the position were actually what National Union is arguing, which is to say we can sit here and not say what, we, what our defenses are actually going to be and not ask the investigator to do them and just sandbag you. And then you'll go through two years of investigation. You'll get all the way to it in the end. And if we win, great, says National Union. And if not, we're going to start over in court. Are there is there any case law on these frisk reports, or, or do we an analogize it to anything? No, there's there's nothing out there to address the frisk report in the scope of it here. The most the most analogous are appraisal clauses. And what the courts say is that within the scope of the facts given for appraisal, it's binding. The same thing applies here. It's just that the scope is lots broader with the frisk report. Again, the, the contract says that they are charged with determining the facts. And the context is the facts necessary to settle the law loss, which includes the policy terms and defenses. So if you want to put something in play, you raise it in the first report. You don't get to sandbag on that, on there. And that's, you know, I, I want to address briefly here, too, the, the resulting directly from. Um, the controlling case there is really this court's Avon State Bank case. And in that case, what happened, it, it was a dishonesty thing, so it covered more things than theft. But the language on directly resulting from was identical to this policy. And what happened there is a bank employee caused deposits to be stolen, and then the bank was liable when it was sued. This court held that even though liability came through the suit, it directly resulted from what the authority did. You can't find this indirect without overruling Avon on this, because here it was so much more direct. Bacchus controlled the sale. She had the authority to enter sales contracts that bound Cargill. And as soon as those were entered at prices that were going to cause a loss, the loss followed directly from that. It's irrelevant whether there were market prices. Council keeps bringing that up. That has nothing to do with any policy term. What happens here is that it was prices that would cause a loss, and the investigator made binding findings on that. To your Honor's question, he found that Cargill would not have shipped all of this, would not have entered into these transactions but for the fraud. The, the investigator quantified the loss. It was $32 million. They say minimal grain would have resulted. The investigator considered how much found the loss at $32 million. That's binding. And of course, as soon as Ms. Bacchus's fraud was uncovered, sales at Albany dropped 90% and then Cargill just exited two years later. So you, you can't quibble with causation or the amount on this. Um, on on prejudgment interest on here, the, the, the statutory rule is that prejudgment interest begins to accrual from the date that a request for payment of benefits is made. As we point out here, 
Cargill gave a formal notice of a claim. That's the language. This is a formal notice of a claim on that on April 28, 2016. We've showed under, under the language of the policy, there is no way to interpret a formal notice of a claim other than a request for payments of benefits. And in fact, the policy itself equates notice of loss and claim for benefits. Their argument against us was that you can't trigger the start of interest until the claim and the amount is quantified. That precise argument has been rejected time and time again. I think the only argument they have left is that you can't read that letter as a request for a payment of benefits. But that's what a formal claim is under the policy, and that's unambiguous on that. So uh, for, for these reasons, Your Honor, we, we think you should affirm in the entirety uh, I want to, I, I have time left here, but I've covered all, all the points that I wanted to cover, and I just want to see if your honors have any questions left or a point that the other side raised uh, that I can respond to. But it's certainly not relevant, but has, has anybody figured out why Ms. Backus did this? No. No, we <laughs> don't know her motivation. So that, that does remind me um, on this. Um, Council said that that they pursued Diane Bacchus's interview and that, that Cargill took that off the table. Um, one of the things they cite in their reply brief says the opposite. Uh, Diane Bacchus was specifically within the scope of the investigation. When they say that the Cargill took it out, that's just wrong. What was but, she in the was she in the middle of her criminal trial at that point though? It was heading there, and that's why she wasn't available for an interview on this. But what happened, Your Honor, is that you know the parties were in the process, the investigative process. This took two years. Uh, during that time, uh, Cargill reached out to Ms. Bacchus's lawyer and asked if she would make Bacchus available, and the lawyer said no. Um, that, that's in the record, the email at, at Appendix 135. In the district court, counsel for uh, Cargill um, thought that during a meet and confer, Cargill's counsel may have said that Bacchus was actually willing to be available under conditions. Um, that was a misunderstanding between two counsel on that. We made it clear in the district court, and this is at our appendix at page 46, note 13, that that wasn't ever the case. Car uh, Bacchus's lawyer was never willing to make her available, condition or not. What we said was accurate, and, and, and that's, that's where it is. So, so that didn't happen. But to, to go back to this, though, you know, if under the Frisk report, the investigator was charged with making definitive findings of the facts. If National Union actually wanted to preserve something, it needed to ask for it there. It didn't ask for it after this. And then when it got in the district court and it said, you know, really this all comes down to Ms. Bacchus, the district court said, well, what could you get from Ms. Bacchus that would be relevant? They had no answer in the district court. They didn't suggest anything. And at that point, you can't go there. What would happen if there is a disagreement uh, between the insurance company and the insured here, Cargill, as to what should be decided or, or yeah, I, investigated in a frisk? Yeah, I, I think that it, there could be a situation where if the parties had, you know, have a conversation, because this is a contract, and, and that would be part of it. And, they, and one side said, no, we really need to do this because it's important to either a claim or a defense. And the other side said, no, we aren't going to do that. And, and you have that open dispute. 
then I think that you could come there and in one party, this would probably be a good faith and fair dealing situation. You can't use your discretion to stymie the other side on that, and I think that could preserve an issue. That The reason it didn't happen here is that there was no issue preserved. That there, there is, I'm telling you, there's nowhere in this record where after Cargill, based on the discussion, made this request not to have internal controls in, which are irrelevant because this is an actual discovery policy, not a should have discovered. The, the, the contractual phrase is, when did you learn facts that should cause you to believe you have a claim? Not when should you have learned the facts, right? And the Frisk report bindingly found that they discovered the facts in February of 2016 in the policy term. So there isn't any preserved issue on that. There also isn't any preserved issue on the other one. And so that issue, I, I think, can be saved for another case, Your Honor. See you at my time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. On this last point, uh, counsel misstated the discovery. It's on uh, the, the test for when a discovery happens. It's not when Cargill discovered. It's when they learned of facts which would cause a reasonable person to believe. That's uh, page 47 of the appendix. With respect to the Frisk report uh, and the Frisk process, it, com it expressly contemplates that there would be additional discovery. That's and you can see that because it contemplates that if the parties can't resolve the dispute, they would submit it to mediation or arbitration if applicable, and that the rules of the AAA would apply to the subsequent proceeding if they agreed to arbitration. Those rules contemplate uh, additional uh, document discovery and depositions. So the the actual contracts. But, but would that would would that only be triggered if you actually were going to go to arbitration? As I understand, that didn't happen here, did it? That, that's true. It didn't, Your Honor. But what it shows is it the parties express the contract expressly contemplates that if there's an additional dispute, there may be opportunities for additional document discovery and depositions. And because in an arbitration, you would apply the the AAA rules. In the in a federal court litigation, you'd apply the federal rules. I.e., you'd get the discovery and depositions if necessary, Your Honor. Do you um, do you agree with your opposing counsel that 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 both the insured and the insurer have an obligation under this frisk process to bring to the table all of the issues that they anticipate will need to be resolved to resolve the coverage issue? So I think it's the parties are to jointly task the frisk investigators uh, to investigate the facts and determine the quantum of the loss. The National Union wouldn't necessarily know every fact that it needs to bring to bear uh, on the issue. I think the intent was to get the Frisk investigators to investigate what they could. Uh, but with respect, for example, with respect to the uh, interview of, of Ms. Bacchus, page 125 of the appendix uh, says that Bacchus' counsel offered to produce Ms. Bacchus subject to conditions that Cargill rejected. That's 125. Well, of the well I guess my, maybe my question's a little bit bigger, and I, I appreciate that that answer. But sort of the issue of um, defenses to coverage, for example, other grounds that there may or may not be coverage. 
Do you agree that those topics needed to be presented for the FISC investigator to address when you use this particular process under the policy? So I think the objective would be to get the FISC investigators to gather all the information that they can, Your Honor, so that would be as comprehensive as possible. But then they are subjected to the limitations of what they're able to discover. The Bacchus issue is one. The internal controls is another. Uh, and the breakdown of internal controls. And those, if you look at page 132 and 133 of the record, Cargill took those out, and it was left, quote, for discussion purposes later. That, that is what the Frisk work plan said. And so litigation is an appropriate time to address those issues with respect to internal controls and the breakdowns, Your Honor. And I see that I'm over my time. Uh, we ask that the court uh, reverse both the, the judgment and also the prejudgment interest. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel for your arguments here today. They're very helpful, as well as the briefing, and we'll take the matter under advisement.